Hello, you nerds out there. It is time to talk shit. Welcome to Nerd Shit. Nerd Shit! Nerd Shit! Today we'll be talking about Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Spoilers ahead, so if you have not seen this movie, then you suck. I mean, who hasn't seen this movie? This movie's like 20 years old. (laughs) (laughs) It's a massive cultural phenomenon from 20 years ago. If you haven't seen it at this point... Then, yeah, you're like five years old. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and by the way, for if anybody here is an international viewer, yes, we know that the movie is actually called Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. It's just American writers just assume that people don't know what a philosopher is, so. If I'm going to play with some gentleman stones, I would rather him be a powerful sorcerer as opposed to a philosopher. Philosophers <laughs> just talk too much. What do you mean you can't do magic? You just, you just think about stuff? Oh, that's... <laughs> All right, so let's talk about some uh, pre-show topics. We want to talk about Venom. Let there be carnage. (laughs) So I absolutely love that they appear to have listened to fan feedback and have realized that Eddie Brock being a complete disaster human being is the (laughs) single best direction to go. That he has not become any cooler or slicker in the intervening years since the events of the first movie and his life is still just an unmitigated shambling mess. And I love that. Yes. I love I love him for that. I also deeply love that they start the trailer off showing that, yes, this is mostly going to be a slightly domestic romance about Eddie and Venom, but there will also <laughs> be monsters and villains and stuff. But that's not what you're here for. <laughs> no, like, that's exactly it. It's like they, they understood what worked about the first movie was just the bizarre, weird humor and the, just the bizarreness of Tom Hardy and the way that he plays Eddie Brock. The first Venom, like, I, I never really know whether to say it's if it's a good movie or not. Like, I don't, I don't really know. Like, it is the movie that it is. It's fucking weird. There's a scene where Tom Hardy's in a lobster tank, you know? Like, yeah. it's, it's so fucking, it's such a fucking weird movie. And I think that they, they're really leading into that even more is like you know what the first movie worked when it was just as goofy and weird as possible and i think that this that this trailer is just leaning into that even harder i'm glad that woody harrelson no longer has a weird ronald mcdonald wig that was the yes. main thing that was the main <laughs> thing for me is that like okay woody harrelson like he's still wearing some kind of wig because like let's face it he doesn't have that much hair and it's certainly not that color but it, it, it doesn't look fake as shit anymore. I'm you excited. Spent some money on it this time. I think, like, again, I'm, I don't, I'm not exactly a fan of the first Venom, but it was entertaining, and I am actually excited for this movie. I think it looks like a completely bizarre fun ride. I would like to take us way back to Blade in 1998, the first mm-hmm. real superhero movie that was rated R, and I would like to thank them. I would like to thank them mm-hmm. for the silliness. Then I would like to take us to Deadpool, and I would like to thank Ryan Reynolds' sweet ass for mm-hmm. creating this unnatural hero movie. And now I would like to go back to Venom, and I would like to thank them for creating yet another what looks like masterpiece. And Woody Harrelson is Carnage. I have been waiting for Carnage my whole fucking life. And I'm not talking about that peewee shit that they had on the cartoons. I'm talking about Carnage from the comic books. I'm talking about Carnage! 
You know, mm-hmm. it's going to be so freaking good. Me and my brother are excited about this movie. Yeah, absolutely. One thing that has me excited about Carnage, and this is kind of a weirdly specific thing, but like one thing that I didn't like about the ending fight from the first Venom movie is you have two really dark colored symbiotes fighting <laughs> each other in a really dark environment. I'm glad that we have like, like Carnage is bright red. Like we're actually going to have a fight where we're going to be able to tell Venom and Carnage apart. Like, I'm sorry, but yeah. that's, that is actually a big, that was a big problem that I had with the first Venom movie, particularly with the yeah. ending fight. <laughs> no lights focusing on the characters. One character is black, the other is dark gray, and they're both roughly the same size. I'm like, who the fuck is winning? I- yeah, I can't tell which was which. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like a bunch of white boys sitting around talking about having to watch the black ones fight. Oh. I can't tell them apart. I'm sorry. I try, but I can't tell them apart. God damn it. God damn it. That's why one was gray. No, I'm, I'm playing. God damn it. I'm getting pinged for that one. Everybody's going to hate me. Nerd shit is now hashtag canceled. Yeah. <laughs> Let's, let's <laughs> it's a good thing we only have three listeners. <laughs> let's awkwardly move along to Stranger Things 4 and Eleven's teaser. <laughs> so, uh, in a direct inverse of how I normally act, I've actually taken your normal approach to trailers for Season 4 of Stranger Things. I actually don't want to watch anything. I don't want to see any trailers. I don't want to see any teasers. I just want to see the show because it was such a strange cliffhanger on the last one that I'm like, no, I just I just want the show. I just don't show me. Don't tell me what happens to these characters. Don't show me anything. I just want to get back into the show. So I have not actually seen the teaser, and weirdly enough, I don't intend to, even though I am very excited for season four. I got to be honest. I like a little teaser, but I'm not into trailers unless it's a movie that I. I've really been looking forward to. I like getting a teaser to see the aesthetics of something, but I don't want a trailer to twist it for me because it might put me in a certain mood before I get in to watch it. So I agree with you, uh, Zach, but this trailer was pretty nice. I loved seeing Matthew Modine back in action. Well, I'm with you guys in terms of, well, I'm definitely with you, Zach, in terms of I actually really don't like to watch trailers normally. Like, I watch them for this show. Mm-hmm. Where, or, let's say, I watch them for the podcast, you know, when, when, when mm-hmm. it's a topic. But, like, in general, I don't really like to watch trailers. But, like, when it comes to the Stranger Things stuff, like, none of the stuff that they've shown has really shown much of anything. They've just been these little mm-hmm. teasers. Yeah. The only thing that we really see from this is that we're gonna see some more, we're gonna see some additional background on Eleven's backstory. Mm-hmm. That's the only thing that they show. They, they, it's just like going down a hallway and we see the doorway that says 11 on it. Uh, yeah, like Matthew Modine, like we hear his voice and we see like, her, we see Eleven's eyes open. That's all it really was. So it's, it's almost more, ju- so th- there's like no plot that was given. It's just a teaser. Whatever. Yeah, it's just a teaser. But yeah, I'm, I'm more just excited about Stranger Things in general. I think that it just, uh, it's, it's one of my favorite shows. It's one of the shows I'm most excited about coming back. It's been pushed quite a bit, you know, as, as a lot mm-hmm. of shows have been, but whenever they show any kind of teaser or anything, like I'm just excited to just see any kind of momentum on on it because like i'm just very much looking forward to stranger things 4 it really is one of my favorite shows all right well let's go ahead and slide on into the main topic harry potter and the philosopher's stone i got harry potter and the sorcerer's stone this is the movie version 
We'll probably, you know, compare it to the book and everything. But yeah, spoilers for the movie, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Probably there will be some spoilers for the full series. You know, like I already have one particular rant that might encompass later on. So like in, in general, it's probably like we're mostly just going to talk about Sorcerer's Stone, but it's probably a good idea to have seen this entire series or to have read them. Let's start by talking about the characters. We'll talk about the kids first, uh, both kind of their character arcs and their portrayals in this movie, as well as the actor performances. And we'll start with the big one. We'll start with Harry Potter. I, I think Harry was a good protagonist. I don't know that he's always the most interesting character in the entire series, but I, I really like Harry, and I think that in this first movie, he's very much the eyes of the audience, of he's kind of experiencing this experience exciting wizard world for the first time as we're experiencing it but then you know he also is kind of uh like there's there's a little bit of a i guess a wish fulfillment thing with harry that you know that this this kind of abused neglected kid who gets rescued from his humdrum life and gets transported to something a lot more exciting Mm -hmm. where he not only gets to be a wizard but he's also like the most famous wizard and just a naturally gifted athlete and all this stuff which you know the more I kind of look back on Harry Potter, it's like, okay, there's there's a little bit. There's definitely some, like, kind of kid wish fulfillment with, with the Harry Potter character in a mm-hmm. lot of ways. But I, I, I enjoy the character of Harry, and I think that as far as uh, Daniel Radcliffe in this first movie, I think that considering the fact that he was a kid, did a pretty good job playing Harry. I think that mm-hmm. of the main trio, Daniel Radcliffe was the most improved over the series. To the point where I think now he's the best actor out of, out of the three. I think that in this first movie, he was still kind of finding himself as an actor, but he was also 11 years old, so it's, it's kind of understandable. Yeah, 100%. Um, one thing that the books and the movies have pretty consistently done is that um, Harry is very firmly the POV character. He is the eyes of the audience into the world. He is the introduction into this world of magic. Harry asks the questions that we, the audience, want to ask because, you know, he frankly doesn't know. There is a lot of wish fulfillment, but given where he starts, I think that it's a very, it's a very natural desire, I think. You know, it really dawned on me, like, I intellectually knew this um, pretty much every single time, reading the books, watching the movies, whatever. But it dawned on me this time the sheer degree to how incredibly abusive the dirt were. You know, th- this is a kid who was locked not only in a, his bedroom wasn't just a broom closet, you know, that was converted into a bedroom. It was literally still functionally the broom closet. I actually noticed that in this movie. It's like, hold on, they keep the, they still keep the fucking brooms and vacuums in there. God damn it. So this is a kid who has had nothing his entire life. And then all of a sudden, one day he finds out that, you know, life is actually interesting. You know, there's a place where, you know, things are, you know, so fundamentally different from this. And most of all, people actually value him. And there are people who love him. And, of course, it's, you know, it's not a perfect fantasy with, you know, everything being 100% hucking dory. There are some things that he'll never have. He'll never, you know, truly know his parents. And <laughs> and there's always going to be, you know, some people who are, you know, dicks, Malfoy. But it is a night and day experience for a kid. And that means a lot to kids. And it is wishful fulfillment, but... You know, this first book especially was somewhere for kids. It's, uh, to a lot of kids growing up at the time, you know, it was an escape to say that, you know, not necessarily specifically this is going to happen, but it's like, okay, not everything is going to be terrible always. 
ways. It's not necessarily going to be a giant coming in and, you know, sending you a thousand messages, but something can happen one day. Yeah, I, I do think that um, that was, you know, portrayed pretty well. I did catch myself thinking, it's like, I really want to see this as, like, a, a series. I want to see Harry Potter as, like, a television series because I want to spend a little more time, just a little more time, not glossing over the fact that the Dursleys were, in fact, the fucking worst. It's not exactly glossed over, but it is it is rushed along in this movie, which you have to for a movie. You, you can't spend so much time on that. And people do want to see the magic. Yeah, so other than that, yeah, just echoing what you said, he's, he's a good protagonist. Daniel Radcliffe was 11 years old, so his acting was about as good as you can expect at the time. Yeah, and he does much improve over the course of the series. I don't, I, he, even in this movie, he is not bad by yeah. any means. He's actually pretty no. good. I actually do think he's pretty good. And, and I definitely see the, the point that, like, yes, it is wish fulfillment, it is escape, and, like, a lot of kids probably needed that, who, who maybe were mm-hmm. living in difficult situations like this maybe reading Harry Potter was an escape for a kid the way that actually going to Hogwarts was an escape for Harry Potter you know they got to live vicariously Mm. through Harry and I think that that is important so what what do you think of Harry Troy? Daniel Radcliffe has been a masterful actor since he was a kid I'm just gonna say that I think that uh, he got a lot of flack because his uh, because he had family on the production and he got the job But to be honest, he earned it. I don't care what his mom was doing. He earned it. He did a really good job. I think that 11-year-olds lack experience, and it's hard for them to figure some things out. But they nailed it. Honestly, Harry, from the very beginning, is whining to me. It's just he's a stereotypical hero. He has to have that loss. Mm -hmm. Batman... Uh, Superman, blah, 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 blah. All of the heroes have to have these things happen to them so that they have suffered and so that we'll feel bad for them. And then we have to see them save the cat. And after we see them save the cat, then we start to like them. Harry Potter is a stereotypical, unimpressive uh, hero. I hate to say that, but he hmm. is the least interesting character in the whole book series. And I understand that you have to have someone that you experience the adventure with, but I wish it could have been someone else. (laughs) But uh, Daniel Radcliffe nailed it. He did exactly what he needed to be. He was whiny when he was supposed to be whiny. He was heroic when he was supposed to be heroic, you know? I kind of know why this is the case. He is the classic protagonist. I do weirdly find myself wishing that the entire series was from Hermione's POV. It's like, this is a perfectly normal girl who received a letter and found out she was uh, going to be a witch and just, like, dove straight into that. It's like, oh my goodness, I'm going to be a witch. I got to learn everything about it right now. And also, one of her best friends might have a weird destiny or something, but that's not important. Yeah, actually, I I did find myself wishing early, even early on, and actually still kind of now it's like... Man, I wish Hermione was the protagonist. She's the best of everybody. She is a bit of a know-it-all to the point where she, like, constantly has to spout trivia to people at every moment. She's, you know, a talented witch, you know, already learning magic. There's actually something you had pointed out while uh, watching it when Hermione had... uh, was talking to Harry near the end there. It's like, oh, there's things more important than books and clever. It's like friendship and bravery and I'm like... And I have both of those qualities, so I'm actually still better than you. 
<laughs> One of Hermione's things that I've always been drawn to is that she aggressively dives into every subject just 110%. And it's not explored a lot in the books, but I think a lot of that does come from the fact that, you know, she is from a non-magical family. So to her, this is all fascinating. She's not as expressive about it in a lot of ways as Harry or Ron are. You know, she's not as, you know, uh, slack-jawed fascinated with it, but it is clear that she loves magic and the magical world, and she expresses that by diving right into it. I like Emma Watson's performance of her. You know, one of the reasons that she, you know, dives so much into this, that she's constantly spouting off trivia, is that she also kind of wants to feel like she belongs here. You know, much like Harry, she can't quite believe that, you know, this is still happening, and so she has to try and prove herself at every moment. I think that's really what it comes down to. Hermione is like a woman entering the workforce full of men. She has no wizard blood, so she is oppressed into having this and to having to be the best. She has to try double hard, not because she's not that great of a witch, but because... Mm she is looked down on and she knows it and she understands that going into the wizard world they have these horrible sayings for her like mudblood or you know it's these prejudices that we have to rise above and Hermione being the woman going into this it had to be a girl that did this Mm -hmm. it truly did and there is no surprise that Emma Watson became such the fabulous feminist that she did become because she had to fight it on screen. She had to understand it and she had to break it down and then she had to live it all these years growing up with it. So when she was older, she was able to verbalize it. She was able to talk about it. Emma Watson was an amazing actor from the very beginning. She really hit it. But that spouting off this trivia and everything, it's not that she was trying to be better than everybody. It's just that she was trying, but it came off as that. But what it Mm -hmm. was is it came off as I've had to study this. I have to be better. Uh, Hey, I know this trivia. Hey, look at that. I'm with y'all. I know this trivia. (laughs) Hey. Mm -hmm. And it comes off as annoying as hell because it's kids. But All too often, it's someone um, overreacting or overworking so that they'll fit in. Of the kid actors in this movie, I actually think Emma Watson is the strongest right off the bat. Mm -hmm. I think Daniel Radcliffe became better than her over time. I think the the problem with Emma Watson is that she started off at one talent level that never really got any better over years. But that's just me. But I, I agree with you guys, like, there were times in the beginning that Hermione kind of graded on me a little bit, but when the more I find out about her as a character, the more I actually do like her. In, in a way, like, yeah, Harry's the POV character, but Hermione is kind of how a lot of people would be if, like, we found out that magic was fucking real. It's like, what? There's magic? I want to find out as much about this as I possibly can. Like, that's how a lot of people would be like, and I feel like... There's a lot of people in the, the Harry Potter fan base who very much kind of would relate to Hermione in that res, in that regard. 
So, yeah, I, I like Hermione a lot. And it's interesting that she was sorted into Gryffindor because on, in a lot of ways she seems like a classic Ravenclaw. She really does, mm-hmm. like, being very studious, like, all about knowledge and everything. But you're right, Zach. It's, like, it's because of that that bravery and that friendship and that, like, the, like she also has those uh, qualities. And those are the qualities that end up actually defining her more so than the fact that she's book mm-hmm. smart. And I like the fact that in both the book and the movie, uh, she doesn't even really fit in with Harry and Ron at first like she kind of mm-hmm. she kind of gloms on to them because like she doesn't know anybody but they're like yeah we don't really like this girl she's weird <laughs> and then they have that bonding experience of the troll attack of you know like with we, the we troll <laughs> exactly <laughs> It's like we get each other on on a deeper level. We had we went through this traumatic experience together, and we came out on the, like the, their their friendship and their bond throughout. Really, all three of them, like Harry and Ron, were already kind of buddies. But I think that for all three of them, that was kind of the experience that really forged and cemented the, that that friendship, which became such a beautiful friendship over seven mm-hmm. books and eight movies. That's when <laughs> each of them realized it's like. You know, Harry and Ron, it's like, yeah, we like each other, and, you know, we get each other. Um, Hermione, it's like, yeah, we're really impressed with you, but that is when all three of them realized, you two are the ride-and-die people who will actually be there for me when I need it. And and the three of them make each other better, and, like, this is, I mean, mm-hmm. a good good transition point to Ron Weasley. Uh, does Ikil Ronnie have something on his nosy? <laughs> <laughs> Ron is just an entertaining character. Like he, he is the mm-hmm. classic comic relief character, and he does. He, he. I think, I think Ripper Grant fulfills that very well. Yes, his performance is absolutely over the top, mugging for the camera. But that is what the Ron character required. Like he's, he's the silly, mm-hmm. he's the goofy kid. You know, that's what Ron is. But there is that. But he does have this streak in this movie, and I, I understand where a lot of book fans feel that they kind of did Ron dirty in the later movies. That uh, and I I like Ron in all eight movies by the way I really do mm-hmm. but like the, he does have this this streak of genuine kind of intelligence like a different type of intelligence that from from what Hermione has mm-hmm. of you know the fact that like I like the random detail that he's a apparently a prodigy chess player you know I just mm-hmm. I just love that it's it's just, it's just a really interesting thing to me so but yeah Ron's Ron's a really cool uh, character uh, Troy what do you think of Ron I think that Ron is the best character. Out of the trio and the hardest one to play rupert grant shows from a very young age that he understands comedic timing and like lucio ball said you either have it or you don't you can't teach timing you cannot mm-hmm. teach comedic timing i can teach you a joke but i can't teach you how to say it because when you're mm-hmm. saying it you have to find your own flow rupert grant playing ron understood how to slip in and tell the jokes physically Without using the words, his facial expressions, everything, it it is a comedic love letter. I'm that type of comedian. I so I automatically bonded with this little boy that I was watching on this movie. I'm a little older than the both of you, so I took my little brother to see this movie when it first came out, and he was all he was all excited about Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. He thought that it was so fantastic, and there's five years between me and him. So I was mm-hmm. like, oh, all right, sounds cool. And I got in there, and I fell in love with it. And then I found out that it was a book series, and then I started reading the book series after I read, after I watched the first movie. So that's where I come in from. I was a little older than the typical Harry Potter fan. But 
oh my god, I fell in love with it. It was so good. And Rupert Grant, he's just so cute. And he understands just going into that and reacting, which is why he's so good at chess. Yes, you have to think a few moves ahead. And that's a game player. If you're a gamer, you need to think a few moves ahead. But if you're playing the game, you can't think about all these excess things. You have to be in the moment. And that's what Rupert Grint is. He is in the moment as Ron. And it's beautiful. So he nailed the shit out of this role. There is a tendency, sometimes among the fan base, um, but also definitely among characters in the book, to see Ron as the also character, the not quite as good as. Um, I do love Ron because he is a character who, he's used to the magic. He grew up with the magic, but unexpectedly somewhat, he something that he and Harry and Hermione actually all have in common is that they do have a strong desire to prove themselves. Because um, he's used to the magic, and so he can help introduce Harry to the world, but he is from a poor family. He is the youngest son, the second youngest kid in a massive family with a ton of kids. Everything that he has is handed me down from a hand-me-down. And he always feels that he has to, in some ways, prove himself because, you know, his older siblings have already done everything. You know, his, old, his older brothers have done everything. They've been amazing Quidditch players. They, you know, joined the ministry. They go off and wrangle dragons in Romania. And so Ron is really desperate to try and prove himself at all times. Um, when he looks in the mirror of Erised, you know, that's what he sees is him having, you know, proved himself, having, you know, been the best of all the Weasleys. You know, in a lot of ways, he does become one of the best of all the Weasleys, not in the ways he thought, but because he does have that extremely fierce loyalty as well, that he is willing to put it on the line as well, you know, at the drop of a hat for a moment's notice for his friends, for, you know, Hermione and Harry as well. He's not as book smart as Hermione, but he is actually pretty clever and quick. As you mentioned, you know, he's got great comedic timing. Um, Rupert Grint plays that very well, but that's always been Ron, is that he has that, you know, razor-sharp comeback. You know, he, he's the character who can look at a scenario a little bit sideways, which, you know, is one of the reasons that he's a great chess player, is, like, he can see the different outcomes of the moves. I think that's important to have, is, like, you know, Hermione can tell you exactly what is this way, um, Harry has the drive to do it, Ron has that turn of the screw, so he can look at things a little bit differently and help provide a solution that, you know, they might not have thought of, that, you know, might not have been immediately clear, as well as that fierce loyalty. So yeah, I, I do think that actually came across very well in this movie. Let's talk about some of the staff of uh, Hogwarts. Uh, first off, Dumbledore, played by the late, great Richard Harris. So this portrayal of Dumbledore, I mentioned earlier that I really want to, I would love to see a Harry Potter television series because one of the things about Dumbledore that it wasn't quite clear yet in the books, I think this portrayal of Dumbledore was actually pretty true to a lot of the characters and especially how a lot of readers saw Dumbledore at this time. You know, this kindly, wise old man, the twinkle in his eye, and, you know, lovable, and um, someone that you can confide and put a lot of trust in. One of the reasons I mention a lot that I think I would love to see a series, and one of the reasons that I actually like uh, Michael Gambon's performance of Dumbledore later, is that I want to see 
in the dialogue, in the actual lines of dialogue in this movie, um, and in the book as well, there are hints that there is something a little deeper and a little darker in Dumbledore than was originally suspected, even this early on. And I don't think Richard Harris's portrayal quite brought that across. But, you know, this is, again, this is very much the Dumbledore that kids and especially the character of Harry would have, you know, come to expect. This is the version of Dumbledore that Harry sees when he um, comes in 100%. But uh, I would have liked to see just that little flicker of this much more complicated man, which... You know, was was not the focus of the movie, but, you know, it would, would have been nice to see a little earlier on. Other than that, you know, I, I do like the portrayal. I know that Richard Harris, you know, sadly passed away before the, you know, completion of the trilogy, of the, you know, series. But I, I do, I do like his performance. He brings a lot of gravitas to Dumbledore, which I think is important. I love saying gravitas, 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 <laughs> acting! <laughs> Michael Gambon was a far superior actor to Richard Harris. Richard Harris was a better singer than he was an actor. Yes, he brought us the Dumbledore that was in the book. I didn't like it. I didn't think that he was aggressive enough as Dumbledore. The Dumbledore that I read. But I watched this movie before I read the book. And after I went back and read, and when I started reading the book, I was like, okay, I could see why he would make those decisions but I was reading Dumbledore a little differently. And then when Michael Gambon comes along, I'm like, that's it. That's what I was reading. I think that Richard Harris's Dumbledore was a very different character than what was actually written. I think that Michael Gambon had a lot more power. So mm-hmm. I hate that Richard Harris kicked the bucket, but I am thankful for Michael Gambon taking his spot. The Richard Harris Dumbledore was not the uh, mastermind that was written. Mm -hmm. Richard Harris was a Merlin knockoff as Dumbledore. I also prefer Michael Gambon. I actually do. I think that he's he's the better of the two Dumbledores. Mm -hmm. There is a feeling that Richard Harris is playing the character in, in the most surface level obvious way. If that makes sense, mm-hmm. of he's he's just take he's take, he does a good job of doing that. I appreciated his Dumbledore more on this viewing than I have in most of my previous viewings. Like it, not, he, his Dumbledore didn't bother me when the first two movies were all that was there, but as soon as Michael Gambon stepped in, I was kind of like you, Troy. I was like, this this is the this is Dumbledore. <laughs> like this yeah. is. Yeah, I'm not glad that Richard Harris died or anything like that. I just no, kind of think no. that Michael Gambon should have been cast from the beginning, to be honest. It's <laughs> yes. more what I'm saying. I agree. Like, um, <laughs> but I like him. I, I still think... I do think Richard Harris is a good actor. I just think that he, he interpreted the character in a very surface-level way. And you mm-hmm. could feel the fact that he... I, I hate saying it like this, but you could feel the fact that Richard Harris was aging and that he was, you know, probably... Mm-hmm close to the end of his life to be honest because he, he was sick there wasn't a lot of energy and in, in gusto to his Dumbledore like he hates saying it but it feels like this would have been perhaps a better role for him 10 years before. I agree but the series series didn't exist 10 years before so there's for Richard Harris there's no way around that I do kind of agree it's like Michael Gambon is actually 
probably who they should have cast from the beginning, considering everything that we know about Dumbledore, and even considering everything we know about him from the books at the time. Yeah. But not not a, not knocking Richard Harris. I do I do like his performance, as I said, but I I do actually think you're right. Michael Gambon is actually the better choice for Dumbledore from you know from go again richard harris you were a great actor and a great man all right (laughs) (laughs) i want to talk about hagrid this first movie was a big one for for that character like he ends up actually being Mm -hmm. kind of a a father figure i think in a lot of ways for for harry throughout the series Mm -hmm. and in particular like he's like hagrid's the one who who rescues harry from from his life pretty much I love the fact that he just, like, accidentally let slip all this information. It's like, he could not keep a secret to save his life. I just love that about Hagrid, that he just keeps, like, accidentally giving them information. Robbie Coltrane is an absolute fucking badass. Yeah. He's been acting since the early 80s. One of his first ones was Flash Gordon. So we have to take Mm -hmm. our hat off to Robbie Coltrane. He is fucking badass um and he's a big deal in england he really is we haven't seen half of what this actor can do and for him to bring this gentle giant to life for us ah, oh, be still my beating heart i started watching robbie coltrane stuff probably after the second harry potter film just because i i was impressed with this actor he was always in that moment he always had this inner monologue and it was so good so, yeah, I started watching uh, and paying attention after that. And he has had a magnificent stage and film career. He has been acting since he was in his 20s. And to come to Hagrid, he's had a, a beautiful career. I hope to have half uh, as great a career as Robbie Coltrane and to be half as powerful as him. So that's how I feel about Robbie Coltrane. Hagrid, like you said, he is more of a father figure. He's that dolting father that Harry can go to and talk to about anything. Mm -hmm. And it's beautiful. It's not like an older brother. It's like a father. I agree 100%. Hagrid has always been one of my favorite characters. You know, he's this literally larger-than-life man who not just opens the door for Harry, but knocks it down, apologizes, and uh, puts it back on its hinges um, (laughs) to this... To this larger world. You know, from the first moment he appears in the book and from the first moment he appears in the movie, I also just want to say that Hagrid, I think, is like the most faithfully translated character. A lot of characters were very faithfully translated. I'm not saying that, you know, anyone was, you know, especially, uh, we'll get to him later, but also especially Alan Rickman's Snape. But Hagrid, you know, from the moment you see Robbie Coltrane's Hagrid enter the screen, it's like, yeah, that's Hagrid. <laughs> that is the imposing force knocking his way in here. I've always loved the character. Just he has a heart that is just as huge as he is. I also love that Hagrid, you know, he's definitely not book smart and he can't keep a secret to save his life. But I think one thing that was very well portrayed, even in, you know, early in this movie, is that Hagrid, partially because, you know, he has such a big heart, has a great wisdom, um, a great empathetic wisdom, especially when it comes to creatures of the forest, you know, um, you know, wild creatures, 
he also knows a lot about how people are feeling. He, you know, is someone that they can immediately turn to for problems. When Hermione or when Hermione and Harry and Ron have, you know, been feuding a bit in later books, especially uh, Prisoner of Azkaban, this comes up. Hagrid is the one who has to remind them to, you know, pay more attention to what she's feeling, what's going on. He is a character that is both Someone that they can confide in, perhaps not the best to confide in with secrets, but to confide in with feelings, certainly. And he's also weirdly good at calling people on their stuff. Like, you know, yeah, he, he is absolutely 100% the father figure to Harry. The father that Harry really should have had um, all those years. And I think it's actually mentioned in the books as well. You really find yourself wishing that Harry could just live with Hagrid. He wouldn't have the richest life. You know, it would be in a hut, but... It would be actually a much richer life. Um, it would certainly be a life where he is deeply loved. And I love Robbie Coltrane's portrayal of him. He's just got such a warmth to this character. He's, he's kind of the heart of this movie um, and in a lot of ways of the series. If, Hagrid, if you can't 100% implicitly trust Hagrid, even despite him being terrible with secrets, then the series doesn't quite work and you love and trust Hagrid right from the start there. Well, and it's worth noting that she who must not be named, uh, her choice to play Hagrid was was Robbie Coltrane, even like like right off mm-hmm. the bat. They had asked her. Yeah. Um I'm talking about the author of the book who we Yeah, we know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yes, but but Robbie like they had asked her like who who she would like to play Hagrid and she had said Robbie Robbie Coltrane. So and and it's yeah, it, 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 he absolutely is straight. At, he feels like he walked right out of the book page onto the screen for mm-hmm. sure. And you touched on Snape. Yes, let's let's talk about Alan Rickman. Alan Rickman. The Snape. Professor Snape. He was my favorite from the beginning. And little did I know. So I knew he wasn't going to be the bad guy on the first one. After watching the movie, I knew he wasn't going to be the bad guy on the first one because it was so classically written. The formula was there. And then after I read the book, the formula was the same. So it was good writing. She Who Should Not Be Named is a great writer, just a bad judge of people. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And Alan Rickman was known for being the villains at this time. So they took Alan Rickman and they played with my little heart. And I thought, maybe he'll become uh, a villain in the end. But by the second one, I knew, by the second book, I knew he was never mm-hmm. going to be a villain because of the way it was written. Uh, he eventually will become the hero. And I figured it it would go along those lines because he was always the bad person and he had to be redeemed and sometimes the only way to redeem yourself is with your life and uh he had to live his life for this other person so alan rickman to play the grays the shades of gray of severus snapes would be ah it would be beautiful i'm more of the archetype of dumbledore but I would love to have a character like Snape to play one day. In my opinion, Severus Snape is one of the most beautifully written anti-heroes in gothic literary history. 
and I'm not being overly dramatic about it. Severus Snape is amazing. I wouldn't want to meet him in a dark alley, mind you. If he didn't know who I was, he'd fuck me up. <laughs> but, but Severus Snape is one of the greatest written characters, and there is no one else from here until later that I could ever picture bringing him to life other than Alan Rickman. Seriously, Alan Rickman is one of the most, was one of the most powerful actors that ever lived. Snape was his starry night. I, I mentioned that Robbie Coltrane was, you know, extremely well cast, extremely faithful. Alan Rickman as Snape was perfectly cast, like 100% completely perfect casting. They will never, um, you know, I mentioned again that I'd love to see this as a show. Uh, one of the inherent problems of having this as a show one day is that you will never in a million years match the perfection of Alan Rickman as Snape. There will be no one else who can portray him quite as well. You know, if they ever do a show, they just gotta go a completely different direction. They can't try and mimic Alan Rickman at all because it won't work. It absolutely will never happen. I've heard early on, and I... On this rewatch, I definitely think it's true that Alan Rickman was one of the very few people to know his character's full arc from the beginning, or at least to know his full backstory, um, yeah. you know, from his very first movie. Yeah, and the ending. And he knows how his character will end. And I believe that's true, because in the books, Snape... I, I actually vastly prefer Snape in the movies to Snape in the books. I know, that's... Sacrilege, but in the books, it's because Snape is often—he's actually a bit abusive, especially towards Neville um, yep. and Hermione. I think movie Snape is weirdly, in a lot of ways, who uh, J.K. Rowling was uh, trying to create—the character J.K. Rowling was trying to create in, in a lot of ways—and um, didn't quite have that, you know, entirely work out. And she eventually got there. I, I love him in the in the last several books. But, um, you know, in the first few, again, he could actually be genuinely horribly abusive. In the movie, just taken in the movie, he's not nice. He is a dick. But you can also see his journey. One of the best moments of just, like, Alan Rickman's internal performance that I love is him at the Quidditch match. When he's casting the counter curse to save Harry, there is such a fierce desperation in his eyes. that That's when I knew that he could never actually be the villain. Um, when you find out, you know, like, I, I'd read the book, so I knew what he was trying to do. Um, and, you know, when you find out, when, you know, viewers of the movie find out later that, you know, he was muttering a counter curse to save him, that moment told me instantly in the movie, it's like, this is not a man who's ever going to betray Harry. You know, Dumbledore would not would understand if Snape didn't do anything. He wasn't ordered to do anything here. He just, of his own volition, saw that Harry was in trouble and is clearly trying with all his might to save his life um, in that moment. And just the sheer desperation that he has in his eyes um, as he's saving Harry. And Harry, who he doesn't like. Um, you know, he he's clearly grating on him, but... He's also constantly testing him throughout the movie, trying to see... You know, I, I also love when he's, like, looking at him at the very beginning, when he's looking at Harry uh, as after he just got sorted. And you can see that he's constantly testing him to see if there's 
shades of uh, Lily in there, um, shades of the woman he loved in there to see whether or not he's going to act more like his father who he looks like, or whether or not, you know, he does have shades of the woman that he loved and admired so much in there. Um, and I think Alan Rickman's portrayal was fantastic. And he is absolutely a great anti-hero character. Like, he's he knows that he is never going to be the hero. He knows that he will one day have to be designated as a bad guy. Um, he's going to have to take the bad guy role. Um, Snape has to take the bad guy role. He's going to have to be seen as a villain and is seen as a villain in a lot of ways. But he will try and do the right thing, try and redeem himself. And he will never actually betray Harry at any point. Like, even, like, just again from that moment on the Quidditch pitch, I knew it was like, he actually will never betray Harry. Yeah, you guys said it. I think that uh, Alan Rickman, one of those all-time just fan- phenomenal actors, immediately, that from that first uh, potions lesson, immediately walks on and just commands the screen. I will teach you to bewitch the mind and ensnare the senses. <laughs> it is like immediately just commands that, that attention. I love how obviously he is the bad guy. J.K. Rowling does this in every single book. That there's some kind of like fake out as far as like, oh, the person you thought was the bad guy is not really the bad guy. For some reason, every single book, I got fooled every fucking time. And always just like, <laughs> God damn it. Like, I should I should yeah. start to pick up on this pattern by now. But it, it was so good. And I yeah, I just just his, his line delivery, like it's it's almost just like over the top and like it's very memeable but like just some of his line dealers like people think you're up to something it's so good (laughs) i just i love alan rickman's performance as this character so much and yes like everything that we're going to find out about the character later in the series the foundation is there the hints are there the the Mm -hmm. little nuances in the performance are there uh, he's mm-hmm. such a good like Alan Rickman is such a good actor and he's such a perfect Snape I understand what you're saying Zach about wanting to see Harry Potter done as a TV show I, I personally never want that to happen Like, and I, I know that it's mm-hmm. it's also just me being precious about how much I frankly do love these movies and I just I just honestly don't mm-hmm. think you could really do a I think you could do an equivalent adaptation that could go deeper into certain things I don't think you could do it better and like I, I just uh, to me like you've got mm-hmm. the books that you can read and you got the movies you can watch i just don't really see the point of doing a show i do want to see a tv show set in the universe of this setting Mm -hmm. i will say this i want to see i actually do want to see a hogwarts tv show i do want to see a seven season show of like a group of kids going through hogwarts i just don't want those kids to be harry ron hermione again i don't i i i kind of would like it to actually be kind of just a lower stakes like just kind of high school dramedy that just takes place (laughs) in hogwarts with with some conflict and with some Mm -hmm. danger but not necessarily having the high stakes of voldemort which I kind of want to get into Voldemort next, and I, I kind of, like, both Quirrell and Voldemort, you know, like, we... I don't want to de- do the deep dive into Voldemort as a character until we get into the fourth movie. But we'll, we'll touch on Voldemort, but also talk about Quirrell, who... I love what the filmmakers of this movie did, which is... All of the seeds that Quirrell is really the bad guy are completely there, and you pick up on it the second time you watch the movie. 
It's really brilliant yeah. the way they did it. Um, the fact that, you know, even from his very first introduction, Harry goes to shake his hand and he, like, recoils his hands away. Such a good little detail. Like, I don't know if Coral was aware of the fact that he was going to die from touching Harry, but or maybe he's just being weirdly skittish. You know, maybe it was just this primal instinct. But the fact that they went out of their way to never have Coral touch Harry was such a, a cool yeah. thing. And then, you know, even uh, at the Quidditch match, Yes, seeing Snape uh, do the incantation, but they also have these shots where you can see the the super intense eye contact that Quirrell's also having, which, again, you don't really pick up on. And, you know, after uh, um, Hermione lights the stands on fire... Zach, you made this kind of funny uh, comment. It's like, oh, all these these adult wizards in the stands with all these different spells, when the sand catches on fire, their reaction is say, you're on fire, and stamping out with their foot. It's like, do they not have a spell? <laughs> <laughs> you're wizards, goddammit. <laughs> but I just love that for that reason. But there's this shot of, you know, there's this shot where they a, specifically show Quirrell fall over, and then specifically show Quirrell get back up and try to reinitiate um, eye contact with Harry, and he, he's not able to do it. These little shots that that they throw in, telling you Quirrell's the bad guy. But if you go into this, like I, I've talked to a lot of people who who go into this movie having not read the books first, like everybody's fooled. Like most, maybe not you, Troy, but like most people are fooled, and most people really do think that Snape is the bad guy. And then you watch the movie the second time, and you pick up on all those details. It's really smart filmmaking. I, I just love that. Quirrell, yes, uh, the actor that plays Quirrell. <laughs> He's just, he's just so good. Talk about over the top. He is over the top and he is beautiful. He is completely phenomenal. But yeah, it's, it's really good filmmaking. It's, it's masterful filmmaking. But Quarrel was a really good first antagonist because Mm -hmm. if we look at it, we needed a villain to ease Harry into it. And we saw the master villain that will eventually show up, but we also got a little baby version of that so that we could be, could see the type of vile creature this character is. But at the same time, uh, it eases us into a series and gets us ready to go. A baby villain, a diet Coke, a fever. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to remind you of this evil. Something that I noticed on this rewatch especially, um, like it had occurred to me a couple times before, but I noticed especially on this most recent rewatch, Quirrell is possibly one of, if not the most competent of the villains of the Death Eaters, and is also just a weirdly powerful wizard in his own right. So Harry, Ron, and Hermione are prodigies. This is established from the get-go. One of the trials that was missing from the movie, but was in the books, was, you know, the logic puzzle, which, you know, Hermione herself had said that, you know, even a lot of wizards have trouble with that because that's not something that's taught at Hogwarts. They don't encourage that particular vein of critical thinking. One thing I noticed from the, especially from the Quidditch match, is that, you know, both Snape and Quirrell are doing their magic, um, you know, they're muttering the counter curses. Quirrell is not saying anything. He's holding his own in this sort of mental battle of wills against Snape. Um, And he can do it wordlessly without breaking a sweat. Um, It literally takes being knocked over in the 
funnel to, uh, to for him to break concentration. Also, he's able to break into Gringotts, one of the most secure locations in the world. Uh, he's able to fool most of the faculty. The only reason Snape catches on to what he's doing, and even then doesn't catch on successfully enough to like warn Dumbledore or have enough evidence to tell Dumbledore is because he recognizes a lot of Quirrell in himself. So he knows, you know, what to look for. Also gets through all of the trials, and the very last scene, it actually impressed upon me, they mentioned that it's technically possible, but very difficult even for Master Wizards like Dumbledore to do wandless magic um, in the books. But it's not that difficult for Quirrell, apparently, because he doesn't take his wand out at a single point. He's actually able to do everything with almost perfect control, with no wand. And it also occurs to me that it's like, this is the guy who managed to find and keep Voldemort alive all this time. So it's like, this is... I do actually appreciate that you don't have an escalating scale of villains. It's like, actually, Harry probably was fighting the single most competent of Voldemort's servants right from the get-go. I, I made a joke earlier about how, while, while I was watching the movie, and it's a, it's a tasteless joke, but... How Voldemort probably could have survived if he'd picked any of the other countless ways to kill a baby than shooting him with magic. <laughs> it's like, look, man, it's it's not that hard. Babies are fragile. Like, <laughs> you can just pick him up, shake him a few times, so it'll... <laughs> All I'm saying is Palpatine conquered a whole galaxy and Voldemort can't even kill a child. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> if, if he'd picked literally any other method to kill Harry, it probably would have Va- worked. Vader but... knows how to kill children. <laughs> Vader knows how to kill children. Should have hit up some Anakin. I'm so glad I'm an atheist, because otherwise I'd be going straight there to hell. There was a... Anyway, the reason that I was bringing that up is that I then noticed that Quirrell, when he was directly attacking Harry, when he was trying to kill Harry, he doesn't try and cast magic and go for his wand. I'm like, shit, yeah, because the last time Voldemort tried that, he died and, you know, got turned into a ghost. So he's just like, all right, this time I'm just going to take my advantage, which is that I'm a fully grown man and this is an 11-year-old child. I can it's kill like him Vol- with Voldemort on the back of his head is like, no, listen, listen, just just take it from me. Just choke the kid out, all right? I, I've, I've <laughs> just choke him out. <laughs> yeah, like, it's, I'm glad that you mentioned like just how competent he is, Zach, because it's not something that occurred to me on a conscious level, but there is this feeling... When you're first introduced to Quirrell, how did this guy get the job of defense against the dark arts teacher? But then you can't find out, oh wait, because like he is actually a complete badass wizard. Like it actually does make mm-hmm. sense. Of course he he would be, you know, hired for that job, but he happens to be evil. Um, and also like yes. the, the <laughs> one half of the Voldemort symbiote parasite. <laughs> yeah. Which is kind of freaky. <laughs> I, I did like the little hint of Voldemort that we yeah. got here. This is not, you know, this is not Voldemort deep dive into character. We don't learn a lot about him, but we do see that he's alive and we do get the general idea of his philosophy. That he's a supremacist. He believes that might makes right and that he was once the strongest of all. Which is why that everything he did was completely fine in his own eyes. And we see how reduced he is. We see that Harry has 
And I do like that, you know, Dumbledore at the end mentions that there are ways that he can come back. We see that Harry is actually living and thriving um, on borrowed time. That this is going to be a problem. That eventually he will come back and they will have to deal with him. I'm also just going to throw out for consideration, is Voldemort a lich? Discuss. (laughs) (laughs) We'll come back to that. My gut says maybe. I'm going to say Voldemort's a bitch. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) He is that. I will agree. Voldemort's a little bitch. 100%, yeah. (laughs) Let's touch on some of the other Hogwarts staff. I mean, McGonagall's a badass. Like, Maggie Smith, she's great. I hated the makeup that they put on Flitwick, and I'm so glad they changed that the third movie going forward. I'm like, what did they do? Mm -hmm. Look how they massacred my boy. It's like, what do they do to he he looks like a he looks like a gnome. Like, what? Yeah. <laughs> he looks so fucking weird. I think those those are the Oh, and, and Bad of a Hooch just like pieces out after this movie. That's the other thing too. It's yeah. like man, they kinda made a big deal about Madame Hooch, who is also completely negligent and doesn't do her job during the Quidditch badge at all, says like Just just fucking Yeah, fire. it's like, <laughs> oh I want a nice clean game. There are so many flagrant fouls throughout that mm-hmm. entire game that she just completely I'm, I'm ignores. To think that like <laughs> the the only rule in Quidditch is that you're not active, actually allowed to shoot your opponents. Yeah. And other than that, everything goes. No, my theory <laughs> no, is that she was fired immediately after this game. It's like Dumbledore was like, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> you, are, you are clearly on the take, lady. Yes, and that's why she's like just not even in any of the other movies. Like, it's like, I was always like, what happened to Madame Hooch? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Like, despite, you know, having those, uh, you know, distinctive amber eyes like a hawk, she's actually blind as yep. shit. Like, <laughs> no, those are just contacts she puts on as an affectation, but she can't see shit in them. <laughs> I've worn those Walking Dead contacts. You can't see shit wearing those. But yeah, overall, as far as as far as far the other professors go, kind of in this same camp, you know, Flitwick is a bizarre gnome-like creature. Who, but he you know, is a badass. Says, like, no, yeah. He's um, one of the greatest. He's a badass. Well, I love yeah, him in the later the movies. Duelist. I just don't like him in these first two movies because he's just like the makeup is just so weird and over the top and like it's distracting. Yeah. But he became an actual person to be able to hear Willow's voice. I don't give a shit what makeup you put Warwick Davis in. Just give me Warwick Davis. You can give him to me naked if if you want to. I don't care. <laughs> I just want to hear him talk in that little tiny voice. <laughs> He plays three characters in this movie, by the way. He's, he's Yes, the, he does. He's the goblin <laughs> bank teller. He's the voice of Griphook and actually later plays Griphook in the flesh. But Ver- Vern Troyer actually yeah. played Griphook with Warwick Davis dubbed over. Mm-hmm. And he played Flitwick. So he continues to play both Griphook and Flitwick in the whole series. But yeah, I love Warwick oh, Davis. Yeah. He's such a good actor. Warwick Davis is fantastic. I love him. And then, yeah, I agree. I love... McGonagall is actually one of my favorite characters in the books, and I just love that she has that extreme badass sternness that everybody yes. respects the moment she enters the room. She looks at you and you're just like, I fucked up. I fucked up right now. <laughs> the thing I love about McGonagall is that she is a badass. She is very hard to fool. And she's also deeply petty in that, like, the minute she sees Harry catch the Rembrandt outside her window, she's like, Potter, have you heard about a sports scholarship? (laughs) 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 I just want to be in Snape's face. I 
almost wonder, I feel like there should be a rule that if you're ahead, I just I just had this thought in the moment, if you're ahead of a house, you can't give points to, to people of that house. I actually kind of feel yeah. like that should be a thing, because like, it would encourage like professors to like reward kids not in their own house. Like, it's otherwise, like, I just feel like if you gave that system, it's like Snape just gives, arbitrarily gives Draco 500 points for having, for having an on fleek hairstyle today, you know? Like, because <laughs> it's all so arbitrary. Nice it really is. I mean, if Dumbledore can pull that shit. That shit that Dumbledore pulls at the end of, like, just uh-huh. at the last second give Gryffindor all these points, the exact number of points they need to win the house cup. Like, I know he's not officially head of Gryffindor, but he obviously is was a Gryffindor when he went to Hogwarts. It's like, okay, there's clearly some bias going on here. It's like, I, I, I feel like Snape definitely gave him some major shit after that. Like, of course, I also think it's That's hilarious how much emphasis is put on the house cup in this first movie and book. Yeah. It's like, later on, it's like, it's it just so doesn't fucking matter. It really doesn't. Like, who fucking yeah. cares about the house cup? <laughs> Who cares? Dumbledore's just gonna cheat at the end anyway. Dumbledore's exactly. always gonna. No, get that's it. why I imagine it's like I want somebody to be like, well, Dumbledore pulls this shit every fucking year. It's like just so <laughs> arbitrarily like chooses a group of Gryffindors to give these points to. Like at the very last second, it's like, well, we know Gryffindor's gonna win every year because Dumbledore's gonna pull that bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> Good thinking, Dumbledore. Fifty points to Dumbledore. Wow. <laughs> You're the headmaster. You don't even get points. God damn it! <laughs> well, then I'll give them to Gryffindor. As <laughs> well as considering the fact that I was in Gryffindor House. <laughs> <laughs> The only other uh, Hogwarts staff character I want to briefly touch on is Filch, just because Filch is fucking oh, hilarious. I love Filch so much. <laughs> uh, the line where they're they're going to uh, they're on their way to the detention in the dark forest, which I'm gonna come back to this scene in a second because I do have thoughts on this. But like when when Filch is talking about the previous detentions that he used to give kids, but I was like, oh, they were they used to be hanging by their thumbs in the dungeons. God, I miss the screaming. Like, that's one of the funniest lines of the movie to me. It's just the, oh, God, I miss the screaming. Like, uh, this, 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 he's such a sadist in, in the best possible way. I, I just, if that actor, just his facial expressions are just so, like, anytime they cut to him for a reaction, you're just going to get a great comedic moment. So I, I love Filch so much. David Bradley, he's another one of those strong actors that uh, from Game of Thrones all the way back. I'm going to look up and see uh, what his first uh, his first thing was called uh, Nearest and Dearest. And he played a second policeman, but he's been acting since 1971 and he has 140 acting credits. Holy shit. And a lot of those are voiceovers and uh, TV shows. So he really does nail the hell out of it as Filch. You're, you're absolutely right. Although I will say going into this, I think that David Bradley should have played Mad-Eye Moody. And I think that um, What's-His-Face that played Mad-Eye Moody should have played uh, Filch. Oh, you would have swapped them. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, we we can come back to that again when we get to the fourth movie. But that's, yeah, that, yeah, yeah that's, absolutely, that's, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I would have to think about. But that. But I was happy to have David Bradley for all those movies because mm-hmm. he really is uh, 
quite the comic relief whenever we need him. What I love about Filch, and especially David Bradley's performance of him, is like, this is the guy who you never want to give even the tiniest bit of power, because he will abuse it instantly. But th- since he doesn't have much power at all, that just makes him, like, wildly entertaining to watch at all times. Yeah, I, I love David Bradley's portrayal of him. He's, like, he, he just commits to the role, like, 110%, and it's fantastic. Um, yeah. Just a hilarious, you know, vaguely disturbing, creepy man who is weirdly given, like, far too many duties for this castle. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it does feel like he has the, uh, the job that should be given to a team of at least ten like, honestly, it's yeah. like, there's one person who's the caretaker for an entire fucking castle, which, it's also, it's, <laughs> it's, it's the conservation of NPCs, you know? It's the cons- uh, conservation yeah. of characters yeah. that, like, we can have one character to, to serve this role. And the fact that, yes, yeah, like, you know, the last movie, he is the one guy trying to sweep up the wreckage of, of Hogwarts. It's just, yeah. it's just a hilarious uh, image, but yeah, not Filch is so entertaining. Mm-hmm. I do, okay, a little bit of a Dursley's rant I'm going to go on. And spoilers for the whole series. I know that there's apparently this something, and I don't remember if this was in the books or if this was like a fan theory or something that She Who Must Not Be Named said. But like, I know that there's apparently this thing about how something about the energy of the Dursleys was like masking the fact that Harry was a horcrux and that was why he was like, am I making that up? Like, have you guys heard this? That's not exactly what it was I think I don't know if it was about the Horcrux at all. I know the reason he was with them, and I actually think this is kind of shitty. But their presence, because specifically Aunt Petunia and Dudley, Uncle Vernon actually doesn't really factor into this, but specifically Petunia and Dudley having the same blood, being of the same family as Lily, means that. Harry is literally protected, like a dome of protection of sorts, while he's with the Dursleys. Judging by the Dementor attack, it's clearly more um, Ampetunia than Dudley. Um, that's well, the boy gets this, diluted, you know, by, by, yeah, but yeah. Being near Ampetunia means that he is safe from dark wizard attacks. And unfortunately, clearly not safe, safe. Um, in general, as he suffers horrific abuse with them. Um, it's really a horrible situation. Okay, here's my thing about that. That whole explanation just feels like an excuse for why Dumbledore left Harry in this completely abusive situation. Harry Potter should mm-hmm. not have been left with the with this family. No. McGonagall even warns Dumbledore in that first scene, are we really going to leave this kid with these guys? Because they're I've been watching them all day. They're kind of shitty. Like, like, she, <laughs> like, she warns them. It's like, and Dumbledore isn't even like, look, we'll leave him here for now. We'll, we'll kind of watch him over the next few years. We'll see what happens. If it ends up being a shitty situation, we'll pull him out. He doesn't do, it doesn't seem like Dumbledore has checked on him once in 11 years, by the way. It doesn't, like, maybe he did, but it doesn't seem like he has. Even if we're going to go through the whole 11 years of this kid being abused and in this really shitty home life situation, 100%, like, after everybody finds out, after Hagrid find out, found out what a shitty situation he is, like, somebody should have talked to somebody else and be like, hey, like, What's what's the Wizarding World version of Child Protective Services? Like, Harry should have been removed from that situation. I'm sorry, but that is a straight-up abusive household. Harry yeah. should have been adopted by a wizard family or somebody who would have actually cared for him. He was going to go live with Sirius. 
Yes. He was going to go yeah, live with Sirius mm. because they could have done the blood magic with Sirius because Sirius was close mm. to James, but Sirius died. Sirius was killed. Mm. And when he killed Sirius, the only other living member that they could use blood from was Petunia. It's, it's the rules mm. of blood magic. It's basically a plot device. It is a plot device. Yeah. Um, but it's a well-written plot device using the blood magic because it's the blood magic that saves Harry the the magic of love, but it's also his mother. So it is a blood magic thing. Um, you're absolutely right, Sam. I get what you're saying. It is a plot device, but it's a good plot device, and it's something that brought a lot of pagans, a lot of magic users, a lot of my folk came to it because of mostly that one spell. I mean, most of the magic is done very well. It's a Christian-based idealism. It really is, because they celebrate uh, Christmas and all of that. They celebrate Christmas, and yeah. Yes. But the the magic, the magic is very well researched. And that blood magic is one of my favorite spells of the whole series. Because you are wondering, why in the fuck is he he still with these? And I completely agree. (laughs) Child Protective Services for Wizards. (laughs) I do find myself kind of wishing that in one of the later books, or, you know, even at the end of this book, you have Hagrid say, it's like, I am going to stop by your street a few times just to let the Dursleys know, hey, I'm watching. Well, and one thing that I really liked about what they did with the movies (laughs) later on is that uh, several of the movies the Dursleys don't even factor into it. And I know it's because they want to move the plot along, but I like the fact that some of the movies just start and he's just staying with the Weasleys. And, like, this is this thing that he he does end up having that safe haven uh, in, like, you know, the Weasleys who also end up being family to Harry, much more so Mm -hmm. than the Dursleys. And Dumbledore does plant a, a bit of a witch war warrior as his neighbor yeah the neighbor was no, that's there true from the yeah very I, had for- I had forgotten about her but yes yeah. yes yes just in case the dursleys yeah. really hurt him the book's early on um i know she doesn't really appear until the fourth movie in the films but in the books she actually is there from go from the yeah. very first movie from the very first book they do mention that occasionally he's looked after by mrs fig and like he doesn't enjoy the experience very much but they do explain that for two reasons which is one if she you know had him enjoy himself too much the dursleys would not go to her because they're horrible fucking people and two, she's an older woman, and what the fuck does she know about what eleven year olds like? <laughs> yeah. No, I hear you guys, and I and I understand why the Dursleys are what they are, and it's what we said before. Like it's it's meant to be that that escape for you know if if kids who read this are mm-hmm. in abusive situations themselves, they can see themselves in Harry, and then when Harry gets rescued, it becomes being able to live vicariously through Harry. Like that's that's really what mm-hmm. it is, and I and I enjoy the Dursleys in the movies. Like I think that um, all mm-hmm. three of the actors. Like, those are also characters that feel like they just stepped oh, right yeah. out of the books. A hundred percent. Oh, yeah. Um, like, the casting for all three was just absolutely spot on. And I think that the, there's the uh, um, scenes are very entertaining. And there's, there's you know, some humor in there and stuff mm-hmm. like that. I just, it's just the more I think about it, the more I kind of realize just how, just, just what an abusive household Harry does live in mm-hmm. for the first 11 years of his life and he has to go back fortunately he only has to go back to it two months out of the year after mm-hmm. that and again I, I like the fact that in the movies like 
It's not really defined how much time he spends at the Burrow during the summers, but I like to think that after a certain point, he actually spends most of his summer with the Weasleys. I like I like to imagine yeah. that because, again, much better environment. He gets to hang out with his friends and actually, like, as much as Hagrid becomes a father for Harry, in some ways, Molly becomes kind of a mom for Harry as well. You know, as, as she well, does. A lot yeah, of I mean, she's a mom for, you know, 20 other kids, too, but I mean, that's... <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I'm, I might as well take another kid, yeah. it's fine. <laughs> Which is why Ginny and, and Harry is just, makes me vomit. <laughs> we'll we'll, we'll yeah. come back to that. We'll come back to that. Um, yeah. Okay. Let's just broadly talk about the setting and kind of uh, how how we sort of find out about different things. You know, the introduction of Hogwarts and Diagon Alley, and you know, experiencing the 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 setting through um, Harry Potter's eyes. Do you think that the movie overall did a good job of introducing all those concepts? Yeah, I I really do absolutely love the way that all of these points are brought in, uh, from Diagon Alley to Gringotts, the castle, Hogwarts being a huge, uh, impressive creation by the team, the Sorcerer's Mm -hmm. Stone taken from history and treated as such. I really do like the way the settings take us away. They take us away to this other world that we wished that we could visit. Uh, I think they re- did a really good job at their production design, and I would have loved to have been a part at creating um, most of this. I think that they were true to the book, so much so that we got it as a theme park. Okay, side tangent. Universal's Wizarding World of Harry Potter so much fun. You 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 feel like you are stepping into the world of Harry Potter. Like it, it completely lives up to the hype. So if like whether whether you go in Orlando or Anaheim, like yes, I've only been to the Orlando one, but I I, I know the Anaheim one is is just as good. So it's kick ass. Okay. Yeah, I'll have to check that out now that I'm fully vaccinated. Yeah, just like another couple of weeks to that. Yeah, careful like yourself, <laughs> unless there's a unless there's a horrible new mutation that overcomes the yeah. Anyhow, but um, <laughs> the virus that must no, be I, I I really loved it. Yeah, one one of the things, um, you know, one of the comments that's often made about uh, Star Wars, and I'm not going in a massive Star Wars rant, this is literally just an aside, uh, one of the comments that's often made about Star Wars is that they have a good job of um, having a used universe, and Harry Potter, I think, especially the movies, absolutely have that same effect. This is a very lived-in world. Um, everything is... Like, the Leaky Cauldron is slightly worn down. It's not just a place. It is an establishment with a capital E. You get the feeling that it has been there for years. One of the subtler reveals um, is when Hagrid and Harry are walking towards the place. Uh, at first, it's just an all-black sign, and then, magically, the logo and the name of the Leaky Cauldron um, slowly appears in the sign as it reacts to the wizards approaching. So I love that you do get these um, little glimpses into how this entire world, this entire used, lived-in world, has been hiding on the periphery of everyone's vision, just outside of reach, out of sight. So that someone might see something unusual, but not it doesn't last long enough when it's not so unusual that they, you know, see anything on a second glance. Yeah, I love the production design, especially for Diagon Alley. Um, Hogwarts is 
I love that Hogwarts immediately lives up to the hype. You can see why even in-universe, um, so many people have such strong and fond memories of Hogwarts. It's a, you know, even apart from the teachers, the building itself has so much character um, and love. One thing I was saying during uh, Diagon Alley is that... Uh, it's like, you know, it's a good thing that wizards can use magic because their their architects are shit. Like, because in Diagon Alley, all the buildings are, like, half-leaning over, propped up with supports, and, like, this place would literally fall apart without magic. But I, that's actually something consistent throughout the Harry Potter books is that, you know, a lot of their architecture is impossible. Like, the burrow is a literally impossible building um, or just deeply improbable. But because they're wizards, they can build beyond what is normally possible. My one beef with Gringotts is the beef that I've had for a long time, which is that, you know, as a descendant of Jews, I'm... I know, I know Sam, you don't see this so much, but not to be offensive or not to, you know, say that, you know, not to take away from you, it's also not your culture, so I'm afraid you actually don't get as much of a say. Just that the Gringotts goblins are kind of offensive stereotypes. Um, <laughs> which is that... It, it's the classic goblin thing of you yes. have this weird, distrusted race that people <laughs> trust to handle the money. Uh, they got long fingers and long noses. They trust them with your money, but... Hagrid says in this movie, don't get too close, don't trust them too much, they're clever, but oh, you gotta keep an eye on the goblins, and I'm like, this is some offensive shit, and I don't even think J.K. Rowling was trying to be... She actually um, addresses that. She actually mm-hmm. addresses that in the books. It's in, like, the the fourth... No, it's in the last book, whenever he's talking to, mm-hmm. uh, what's his name, uh, Griphook. Griphook, yeah. Yeah, they, in the book, they actually have that conversation yeah, about like, the prejudice look, against the goblins. Yeah, you guys have always looked down on us, and that is some serious yeah. bullshit. But. You know, that's something that I was upset about the book series, with the whole series of the movies, mm-hmm. is we never saw the House Elves thing come out. And you talked about yeah. it being a movie, and that's one reason yeah. why, from the very beginning, I yeah. complained about not having a show of Harry Potter. Because I thought it could have been like Game of Thrones, and I thought that it should have been. Because the house elf subplot should have played out more, because it was a huge part of the ending, uh, whenever it came to equality. Uh, It's the reason why Voldemort doesn't just have a couple of crazy followers. It's like, the entire Wizarding World already takes place in this kind of prejudice, in this kind of bias. Yep. They benefit both historically, um, yeah, Griphook mentions that, that you know, wizards have gotten better, but there was a lot of conflict with mm-hmm. other, you know, they were they were British. They were the colonialists who attacked the world, benefited from it, and now they're trying to pretend that, oh, but that's all in the past, even though it is still affecting everyone to this day. And in the books that was addressed, um, Griphook, you know, gives Harry, Ron, and Hermione the, you know, very stern history lesson of it's like, this is still going, this shit is still going on, and it does not surprise me. Voldemort and his like are, like, the worst example, but, you know, they're not the only example. I also even like the Sirius, a character who we do love and like, is very guilty of these attitudes. He is. Yeah, he, he's very guilty of these attitudes. Ron, actually, one thing I like is that Ron is very guilty of his attitudes, and then he gets better. Yes. He learns. He checks himself. 
Um, you know, he's the one at the end in the last book who says, wait, we need to take care of the house elves. We've got to make sure yes. they're safe. And I do actually think that that was an important plot that later movies, I think, need to help with. And I also think it's important because we mentioned earlier that Filch is the caretaker for the entire cast. It's like, one guy can take care of it. No, he doesn't. He's the one human in charge of that. And then there's countless unpaid, yeah, countless slaves that handle yeah. it as well. That most of the characters, Hermione is ridiculed for by the wider wizarding community for caring about this. Even though, yeah, it's important. And eventually, you know, Harry and Ron get better. They do realize from that. But... You know, at the start, even they, even our heroes, are very tempted to just ignore this plight. Which I think it's very important to note that she did point out that even though they were heroes, mm -hmm. they were not always in the right. Dear JK, mm -hmm. go back and look into that theme. Just because you're the hero doesn't mean you're right. Maybe you should sit back and recheck yourself. <laughs> but, yeah, so the goblins always bothered me, especially because in this first book, that's not critically looked at. Again, I do like that it's critically looked at later, but in this first movie, it, it just bothers me. I'm sorry. In the first movie, it's supposed to be there so that it can be addressed starting in the second book because Hermione starts the house mm -hmm. elves thing. In the second, mm. in the second book. I'm not actually certain how much of that was a conscious effort on J.K. Rowling at the time, and how much is just, that's goblins, and not critically looking at where a lot of common conceptions about these mythical creatures came from. And that's actually an important discussion, I think, for fantasy, that we don't necessarily have the time or to, you know, to get it all the way into that right now. But that is an important thing that I think fantasy authors and J.K. Rowling, I think, did do this later on. She did, you know, um, you know, have a lot of feedback and put a little more thought into that. But when you're addressing fantasy, if you bring up a fantastic creature or if you bring up, uh, you know, a monster or some sort of magical being, you do have to be conscious of where these concepts came from or how they or how the popular culture version of them adapted and changed over time so that you are at least aware of the connotations, um, you know, how it affects real world groups. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I agree. I agree with everything you're saying. Again, I know that you had brought this up in a previous podcast and I don't remember mm -hmm. making, making those comments. Mm -hmm. Like, maybe, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'm thinking mostly, of mostly just along the lines of saying, that you you didn't really see it, and you know I I get that. I'm not saying that you were you know being mean about it or you know being bad about it, but you just you just said that you didn't really see or get that as much, and you know I think that's that's also something to be conscious of, and it's also you know relevant for the series because you know Ron, as we mentioned, is a character that deals with that. That that's. Part of it is that if you're not part of a marginalized group, um, it is very easy not to notice this just yeah. because you haven't, you're not aware of the biases that are against this group because marginalized people have these biases, have these um, negative images blasted at them all the time. Yeah. Um, and if you're not part of that group, you might not see it. And that's not because you're a bad person or because you're not doing your research it's because it is it is not it hasn't affected you much and yeah. that's not i'm not calling you bad in any way for that you are actually 
one of the most conscientious people I know. Um, you all, you do think about Honest, this type of thing a lot. Honestly, but what it again, is. again, it's very easy to miss. And there's a lot of things I miss, too. Honestly, um, what it groups, is. There's a lot of things I don't get. Is people are racially insensitive. It doesn't mean they're mm-hmm. racist. It doesn't mean they're bad people. It's just that they're not, they're not sensitive to that material. Mm-hmm. They don't understand that material. And uh, mm-hmm. so being insensitive just... It has to be checked out. Now, the way that you react to that, uh, there's two ways. There's, ah, no, I'm not, I'm not like that. No, I'm not like those. I don't see color. Or, oh, I never thought about that. I didn't see that before. But, wow, okay. And then you start yeah. seeing things. And then you start picking up. It's all about being, it's all about being able to broaden your horizon whenever it's shown to you. Uh, but yeah, that's oh, yeah. that's a and, racially insensitive thing. No, and I and I, I completely yeah, and agree you, with you guys. And yeah. I'm not trying to I'm not trying to like overly defend myself. Yeah. And I don't feel like you're like attacking me or right. anything. No. I just am genuinely trying to remember when yeah. I said that because I just don't remember saying it. <laughs> like that's that's literally that's really all I'm saying. It's like I don't remember mm-hmm. saying that, but I I don't know. Was it on the air or was it just in a, a different conversation, like off the air? Do you remember? I, I think it was just okay. A they, okay, yeah. I, I was I, I was trying to remember because yeah. I know that you had brought this up on on the yeah. Batman v Superman episode mm-hmm. when we were talking about um, yeah. Joss Whedon and all that. Uh, and like, I, and I, I I don't think that yeah. I had really yeah. rebutted to 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 that talk at all yeah. because yeah. No, no, you yeah. you, you did. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> no, like also yeah. Just as a general note for listeners and also everyone's like Sam yeah. is a person who every single time chooses to broaden his horizons. Um, yeah. Like, you you do... Um, you are always constantly learning and always constantly working to improve yourself. And exactly. that is something I deeply admire about you. Not just, you know, when it comes to, you know, these you know matters of uh, racial sensitivity, but just, like, in general, always trying to improve yourself. And that is super impressive. You as a comedian, cool. as a comedian, uh, I have to be checked a few times. And I have been in my life... Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes I want to rail against it. I want to rail against it violently. I want to go, it's just a joke. Shut up. But I've learned mm-hmm. that that's not the way to grow. So mm-hmm. I, I'm guilty of that. I'm oh, yeah, guilty no, we, of that. We all I'm have been. Of, we all have been guilty. Yeah. We all have yeah. been. I, I definitely have been guilty of that. All right. Um, I, so all right. Again, the, 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 getting a little bit back on, uh, on track. This, this, yeah. was good, this was a good conversation. Got a little off topic there. Sorry. One overarching problem that I have, like on a completely different thing from what we were just talking about, one overarching problem that I have with this movie, which is actually something that honestly couldn't have been avoided. It occurs to me when I think about this movie that about 80%, this is a two and a half hour movie, about 80% of this movie is exposition. When you really think about it. Like, (laughs) like literally like a huge percentage of this movie is exposition. Explaining what Hogwarts is and who the characters are, how the houses work, what Quidditch is, what the Sorcerer's Stone is. Like, there are so many scenes that are just there to explain how shit works. And it's it feels so mm-hmm. disproportionate in this first movie. And in fairness, there's a lot to get through. But it's like there are so mm-hmm. many scenes in this movie that's just somebody explaining to Harry Potter how shit works. That's exactly how they get away with it, too, is yeah. that they have to explain it to Harry Potter. But mm-hmm. it is the only thing amateurish I think that she did, and I also think that the movie did. I don't think it yeah. should have been... Uh, as big of a part of the movie 
yeah. as it was. Less explaining. You're absolutely right, Sam. Harry, Harry is not the worst character in this. Uh, he doesn't. He's a character who doesn't tend to ask why a lot, and he he does get better about this later on. He does. You know, constantly ask what's going on, why, when he realizes that's something important. But in this first one, he doesn't ask why a lot. But the reason for that is because everyone fucking tells him what's going on first. <laughs> so his his question is what, and everyone's like, oh yeah, here's what's going on. Um, he, he does ask what quite a bit. Yeah, much much to his credit, is like as soon as he has to explain to him, it's like, got it, I'm going to do something about that. It's like, wait, wait, well, Harry, no, you don't have to personally do anything about it right now. You're an 11-year-old. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> One thing I just really want to quickly touch on is the Dark Forest sequence, because it's kind of bullshit that that's detention is going on this quest in the, in the forbidden forest <laughs> that kids aren't allowed to go into. So that, that did feel like a little bit, again, like I'm, I'm getting into some, some of my, my nitpicks with the movie that like, yeah. it felt like kind of a contrived way to get Harry. And yes, I understand that the problems with the movie are the same problems that are in the book, but those were also problems in the book. Like it was a contrived yes. way to get Harry into the dark forest. So he could have that encounter with Voldemort and then the, the encounter with the centaur. I don't like the CG for the centaur. I never have. I think that it should it yep. should have been the upper half should have been a live action human and the bottom half should have been yes yeah like the fact that it was full CG I I thought it was bad like the one thing they did smartly was have him be in low light and never focus on him too much so it, but you can t- it's it's bad CG like even for the time it was yeah. bad CG he's also kind of weirdly the centaur of uh, much approximate knowledge it's like. How do you know all these things? Wait, you know Hagrid. Hagrid actually... Exactly. But again, it's like more exposition. Like, again, like, it's there's so much exposition in this movie. Even in scenes where, you're, where you don't think it's going to happen. And, like, well, there's all... Like, I think they did a good job of tying everything together. But there's all these sequences that just feel kind of random and disconnected. It's like, oh, now we're going on an adventure in the Dark Forest. And it does end up tying in. But it, it feels like these unconnected little mini-adventures that they kind of loosely string together mm-hmm. by the plot thread of the Sorcerer's Stone. My favorite part of the, uh, the Dark Forest mm-hmm. is that uh, Malfoy had to go because he was a tattletale. Yeah. No, I love that. I love that, actually. That was great. I do love just this brief moment of Harry and Malfoy having to work together. Um, yes. Something. <laughs> if only because they can't, uh, like, this. they've got more of it even in the books, but I do like how even this brief snippet was just like, man, even when I'm having to work with you on something, you are just insufferable. Gut. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, we also learned that Malfoy is not the bravest of the bunch. No. 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 He's, no. There's, there's a reason he's not in Gryffindor. I have a little bit of a Quidditch tangent. I'm sorry, I'm trying to move this along just because like, we're, we're short on time. Go oh, that's it. fair. Quidditch tangent, um, go. Quidditch makes no goddamn sense. The rules of Quidditch <laughs> are fucking stupid. Because this is one of those cases where Quidditch was specifically designed to make Harry Potter the hero. When you really think about it, all these other players don't fucking matter. The seeker from each team is the only player that matters. Everybody's, like, throwing the balls into the quabbles, getting their 10 points each, and yet, like, whoever catches the snitch gets 150 points for their team and immediately ends the game. Yes, technically it's possible for the the team that doesn't catch the snitch to still win, but it's so unlikely that it just makes the entire rest of the game pointless. Like, it happens in the Quidditch World Cup, but it's such an upset that nobody betted for it. I think she actually does a pretty good job in this first book, but... 
That is one of the big hints of this her, this being an amateur effort. All she had to do was change it so it's like, Snitch is worth just the same as the Quaffle. It's worth 10 points, but it ends the game when you catch it. And that could have made it, you know, feel like a real sport. It's like, yes, you have an important job. You have one of the most important jobs, but the other players actually... Yeah, and it makes it strategic as far as when you catch the Snitch of like, oh, I have a chance to, Mm -hmm. but my team's down, so I'm not going to catch it until we're back up, you know? It's like, (laughs) it's that kind of thing. Like, like strategy comes into it. And then, of course, you'll get, like, you know, the trigger-happy seekers like Krom who will just catch it anyway, just because, you know... (laughs) But... I see ball, exactly. I catch. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the Quidditch sequence was fun. Like, it was well done. It was well shot. Again, there were some very uh, uh, flagrant fouls that went on. Um, but uh, it's like, Madam Hooch, wake up. God damn it. Did, 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 did this, uh, did, you know, did Snape, like, slipper, you know, 50 galleons to look the other way during this match? Yeah. I, I, I like the sequence. Again, going back to VFX, and I know this is a 20-year-old movie, but, like, it's... it's it looks pretty green screen at certain points. Like there are shots that look pretty like, okay. they like the, the like stuff about the lighting. Like, I don't know. It just doesn't quite match for me, but you know, it's, it's also getting into nitpicks. It, it looks pretty good. I think that Harry should not have caught the uh, snitch in the first game. Yeah. Uh, I think it's the same as letting Ray escape without losing her hand in one of those uh, lightsaber duels. <laughs> I think that you give him too much power. <laughs> Give yeah. him too much power. There's no way he should have caught that snitch on that first try. Yeah, I actually kind of agree. I think it would be heartwarming, weirdly, if Harry did not win the match. If he got close, get, let him get yes. close, but the other seeker gets it. He comes off the match dejected, and then everyone still cheers him on. Because it's like, it's yeah. your first game. Look how well you did. Like, you didn't win us the game, it's but more realistic. you came close. You did a really good well, it's, job. It's, it's the Rocky yeah. one. It's Rocky one, you know? It's, it's totally... Yeah. Like you go the distance, Harry. You, you yeah. went the distance. I do. I liked the fact that they they tied in Quidditch with one of the the challenges of the gauntlet towards getting the Sorcerer's Stone. It is a little bit convenient that yes. there's these three tasks that each one is uniquely suited for each of the three members of the trio. <laughs> I'm just imagining, like, did Quirrell really do all this? Did Quirrell like you know come up on a broom and chase out? Of course. I guess you, you wait out. He's such a badass. He probably just accioed the key to his hand or whatever. But uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I really just like I I love picturing the those challenges from Krull's point of view because one of the one of the reasons I think he's so frustrated when he gets the mirror is that every single challenge he's like, "What is this fucking bullshit?" and he has to go through it all. And I just like imagining him getting increasingly frustrated as he goes to each challenge. It's like, fucking keys, goddammit. Some bullshit. I have one last tangent. I have one last tangent, then we can wrap up. The fucking chess game. Okay. First of all, the fact that there are these these two empty squares for Harry and Hermione to have it to be living chess pieces. Why are there just two empty squares? If it's because they were empty from the previous chess game that Quirrell just played, why are there no other empty squares? All of the pawns on both sides, mm-hmm. all of the pieces on the white side are there, by the way. All mm-hmm. of the pawns on both sides are there still. And I just never and then Ron has to like get onto the horse. But why does he have to be on the horse? He says knight to e5 and the the horse goes there. 
I feel like the horse would do that whether Ron was on it or not. And then the fucking queen comes to take Ron out. The heroic sacrifice of Ron. Okay, several things about this. First of all, okay, let's just say that the horse won't move unless somebody's on it. Okay. But once the queen is slowly coming at Ron, he's already sacrificed himself. Jump off the fucking horse! You have like 20 <laughs> seconds to jump off the fucking horse. <laughs> and then the queen just stabs the horse and Ron just falls on the ground and is unconscious. That Like, what happened to him? Like, I know this is a PG movie about kids. We can't have it be like gruesome or anything like that. But the way is like, he just kind of fell off the horse. He didn't even fall, like, on his head or anything like that. Like, why is he unconscious? Like, what? We're supposed to accept that he's just hurt for some reason? It's like watching uh, Godzilla's foot come down on you. Oh, no! Godzilla! Godzilla! No! Don't <laughs> stop on me! literally like the first Austin Powers movie. They're coming at the guy with his seam roller. He's just like, no! Get out of the way! Get out of the way! <laughs> <laughs> it's just like... <laughs> Almost 30 seconds where he's just, like, steamrollers going like... Don't worry, he's like, Ron, you idiot, jump off the fucking horse! <laughs> what? Having said that, it's still a really fun sequence, but it just... The more I watch this movie, the more I think about this sequence, this sequence makes no fucking sense. It's so dumb. It is so dumb. He's just not that bright. Yeah. He's just not that bright. <laughs> Great chess player. Otherwise... Yeah, <laughs> there, but, uh... <laughs> it's not all there. All right. Well, since we're running low on time, we'll go. We'll go ahead and uh, we'll go ahead and wrap this up. I think we've we've we'll, we'll, anything else you want to say, we'll do in our, our kind of closing thoughts. So, Troy, why don't you start us off? Overall thoughts and score from one out of ten. All right. So, my overall thoughts is it brought me into the Harry Potter world. This movie, um, I really enjoyed it. I give it an eight out of ten. The two points that I'm not giving it has to do with doing exploitation throughout the the script i think that they relied heavily on having to tell harry what everything was when he could have just lived it and they could have uh happened explaining everything to harry uh i think that takes me out of the moment and it takes everybody else out of the moment let the world build itself my thoughts are actually pretty similar yeah really good kid actors especially you know given their young ages on the script you know, they actually did a very good job centering and uh, carrying the film. I think it was a beautifully realized world. This is an excellent introduction into the world of Harry Potter, into the beginning of this story. And I think it's a very faithful adaptation of the books that everyone loves so much. And, you know, the movies brought it to even wider audience. Yeah, again, I'd say, yeah, 7 out of 10, pretty much for the exact same reasons that it was very exposition heavy. I do think that... <laughs> There was probably a way to have a little more show, don't tell. Obviously, they do have to do some tell, but I do think they could have taken advantage of the new medium of film a little more and had a little more of it be, uh, you know, trusting the audience, um, sh showing us this part of the world and then trusting the audience. I'm exactly with both of you. I think it's way too exposition heavy. I think some of the transitions were a little bit awkward as far as like, it, it just kind of, mm -hmm. it just kind of meanders from scene to scene. You don't really get a good sense of this movie is taking place over the course of a year. I think Alfonso Cuaron did a much better job with that in the third movie of you really feel the passage of time over that movie mm -hmm. and such good tr scene transitions so i'm a little 
little bit spoiled from from those later oh, movies. Um, <laughs> I uh, I mean, there. So I, I overall like the aesthetic of, of Hogwarts, but there's something a little bit flat about certain things in a lot of ways. A literal sense, you know. I think there's a mm-hmm. general lack of topography. Um, like I, I never really like the fact <laughs> that Hagrid's hut is just like a couple feet outside of the castle. You know, it's like again, they 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 yeah. really overhauled it from the third movie going forward, and I think it was a massive improvement. <laughs> but I still think that there's a sense of wonder and uh, a, a genuine sense of magic throughout this movie of discovering this fantastic world like you know that shot of you know the the boats going over the lake and slowly panning up to reveal hogwarts for the first time is an excellent shot i think chris columbus did a good job with this movie it feels like a throwback movie it feels like a classic steven spielberg movie um it is also my it is the weakest of the eight harry potter movies but it's still very good i i agree with zach i think it's a seven out of ten well that's gonna do it for for this episode of nerd shit uh troy can where where can the folks find you uh you can find me on the corner (laughs) (laughs) uh you can find me under troy hensley under on instagram and facebook i post as many offensive jokes as i can a day so Come by and get offended with me. Whenever a Targaryen baby cries out, whenever you hear a sign of distress, I won't be there. I'll be eating something. <laughs> but you can also find me. Uh, you can also find me on Facebook as Zachariah Schneider. You can also find me on Twitter as Zachariah Schneider. I'm very imaginative, as you can see. Literally, that's going to be at Zachariah Schneff4. Zachariah S C H N E 4. My name is Sam Wilson. I am not Captain America nor the Falcon. You can find me on Instagram at SCWilson underscore actor. That's S-C-W-I-L-S-O-N underscore actor. I am in a play right now, the William Shakespeare's The Two Gentlemen of Verona, which is happening. It's starting May 21st is, is going to be the first weekend of it. It's going to be going for four weekends after that. It's going to be in Pont City Market in Atlanta, Georgia. So for those who live in Atlanta, Georgia, follow my social medias. I'm going to be posting about it there uh, as far as like where you can get the link to get tickets. Follow my band Running Riot on Instagram and follow Nerd Shit at the Nerd Shit Podcast on Facebook and Instagram and at the nerd shit on Twitter. We post episodes weekly. I think uh, by the time we release this, we should have just released Game Shit, which is going to be Uncharted Drake's Fortune. We're going to be keeping an eye out for more Game Shit episodes. Mm-hmm. Next week, we're doing, we're stepping back into the Trek universe. We're doing Star Trek Into Darkness. Is, wait, is it Star Trek <laughs> Into Darkness or Star Trek Into Are we trekking into darkness? I don't really know. But... It will be Star <laughs> Trek Into Darkness. Yes. If only, if only <laughs> Star Trek into <laughs> Darkness. He will be in the next one. He will be in the next one. But make sure you're subscribed. Make sure you never miss an episode. So you're subscribed to Nerd Shit uh, on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. Uh, both episodes of Nerd Shit and Game Shit are going to be on the same channel. And for Zach Schneider and Troy Hensley, thank you for joining us for Nerd Shit. Nerd Shit. Nerd Shit. Nerd shit, nerd shit, nerd shit, nerd shit. Stay shitty, nerds. <laughs> nerd shit, nerd shit. So strap on in, girls, and talk about the nerd shit.